Welcome to today's episode of Property Millionaire Coach. I'm your host, Adam Panisi. I'm currently building a $200 million property portfolio through my development company, AdPen. I started in property over a decade ago at the age of 22, where I developed a $3 million project and I did this while I was earning $60,000 a year as a graduate engineer. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. If you want free training on how to accumulate multiple properties and how to do property development, go to my website, www.libertyblue.com.au. I also have advanced training courses you can enroll through the website. In this episode, I'm going to talk about suburbs in transition. If you don't know what that means, stick around because I will explain what that is and how you can get into these markets and make a huge amount of money. A suburb in transition just means that it's going from one aspect, one sort of demographic, and then being transitioned into another demographic. This can happen around the inner city, where some people might refer to it as gentrification, where you're getting either younger people or older people moving into an area, and the dynamic of the suburb is changing. So that might be the introduction of more apartments, which are more expensive than the surrounding houses, or it might be the introduction of new cafes, retail, that sort of precinct where you've got this suburb that was once under the radar is now up and coming with all these new facilities and all these new amenities, apartments. So that's more like the inner city. And then you get suburbs in transition, which sit on the outskirts of the cities. So this is like the urban sprawl. So where where development is being pushed out into in lower density. So for example, like the new housing estates and those suburbs in transition uh, on the outskirts, they're single, normally single houses or they might be like some attached residence and a lot of them are first home buyer markets and that's where the affordable land is. But I'm gonna tell you how to actually get into these markets at the right time and be able to ride that initial growth wave of those markets. And this has been my experience in those growth centers, both having developed in those areas as well as sitting on the sidelines or being in adjoining suburbs and or purchased investment properties in in different transitioning suburbs as well. So there's two real differences between the transitioning suburb, you know, inner city or one that's going from a low density, for example, houses in a quieter suburb and then going into more higher density. So that apartment building that I was talking about where developers move in, they build high-rise apartments. And you've got to be able to pick the undervaluedness of the suburb. So in, in other words, you've got to be able to pick and see that the upcoming development is actually going to add value to the suburb and not detract from it because it can go either way depending on what the developers build in that area. So if you're in an area and the developer's building investment grade stock or housing commission or build to rent, for example, that's the new housing commission, that suburb may not necessarily experience a whole lot of capital growth. It may actually do the opposite. So it may detract from the current values. And every suburb is going to be different. And every suburb, when you're looking at it, is going to be in a different growth cycle. So if you're coming into a suburb and it's just had two years of hard growth or three years of hard growth. That's generally how long the growth 
cycle lasts for anyway is that two to three year period. And we've just seen basically a growth cycle around Australia as a result of increased liquidity post COVID. So everyone had money to go and spend and everyone had access to bank funds because they were lending it out a lot more freely. So access to credit was a lot easier. So we really had a boom around Australia. It almost didn't matter what you owned. You could have owned a property in the middle of Australia and it grew in value and typically that doesn't doesn't happen. So with the growth market cycles, if you're going into an area transition, the biggest growth that you experience in those transition areas, especially on the outskirts, is when the land initially goes from that farmland or that open space, rural, in nature where you've got homes on big large parcels of land where it initially goes from that into being developed into small housing lots. And it's got to be like a big transition. A developer moves in, starts building, say, a thousand blocks of land and changes the landscape. So it's in that initial phase, in that initial entry buying, where you're going to see the most capital growth ever in that suburb. Because after you experience that initial uptick in value, then you get that flat line. And for most of the outer suburbs, that flat line is going to last for 10 years, in my experience. Uh, for the inner city suburbs, that flat line, that stagnation lasts for a lot less. Um, but you, you normally, well, in my experience, I've seen it two to three years, it goes boom, the developers go hard, they build heaps of stock. And if it's good stock, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. But at some point in that two to three year window, generally, they go and oversupply the market. So for the likes of Stockland, Lend Lease, who are building on the outskirts, you know, when you, if you get in initially in that stage one of the development, the prices are normally cheaper. And then as you roll into stage two, three, four, five, and beyond into the development, the release of the land, the prices normally get more expensive. But again, the market timing makes a difference as well. We've just gone through a rapid growth cycle in most areas, in pretty much every area. So if you're going into a transition suburb thinking you're gonna make money at the moment, just have a look at the surrounding suburbs and how those prices compare with that new transition suburb because you, you still need that pricing disparity, so that pricing difference, even in, a, even in a transition suburb. So if you're out on the outskirts, 40 kilometers out of a, out of a capital city, I'm thinking of the East Coast capital cities. I'm not as familiar with the other capital cities, but if you're say 40 kilometers out, 50 kilometers out, something like that, and the suburb closer in, the house prices are a lot more expensive and you've got a release of new land. You just gotta have a look at like the replacement value. You don't wanna be spending 20% more to be further out from the city even if it's in a new suburb. So what I would be doing in that instance is if there's a suburb closer in, one or two suburbs closer in, and there's a suburb that's in transition, so you know the likes of Lendlease are going and building 5,000 homes over the next 10 years, and those homes are, say, priced at $500,000 for the block of land, maybe $500,000 for a build. So you've got you know, million-dollar homes, but two suburbs away with very similar amenity, you can buy a completed house that might only be say six or seven hundred thousand. Now you gotta do the way up as to affordability and also the value proposition. Is that six or seven hundred thousand dollar house, does it offer the same value as that million dollar house? Keeping in mind that your six or seven hundred thousand dollar house is existing, so it's second hand, and people always pay 
a premium for new product because it's new, kind of like a new car. So people will pay more money for a new product, but it's in that replacement cost that then lifts the values of the surrounding suburbs. So the transition area, they might be you know, entry level a million, but by the time they get to stages two, three over the next couple of years, that entry level at a million might end up being now 1.1 million, which means for the surrounding suburbs that are at six or were at six or 700,000, now all of a sudden six or 700,000 looks cheap when these stage two properties are now at 1.1 million, or maybe they go to 1.2 million. And that's where you get that initial growth. But that normally only happens in the first two to three years of the development launch and then what normally happens is that development goes into oversupply because that's how long it takes to supply the market and that initial growth trajectory flatlines. So you might get that instant 20% growth, 30% growth in that transition suburb itself and in the in the outlying surrounding areas and then it flatlines and those those outer suburbs especially they flatline for a lot longer than the inner city as and the reason it flatlines is supply or sorry, demand needs to catch up with supply. So the supply that's being brought to market needs to be taken up by the demand, by the buyers. And on top of that, now you've got a value proposition where these houses have just gone to like say 1.2, 1.3 million. So they've just jumped by 20, 30% and beyond. So now buyers, especially with first home buyer markets, now they're at that affordability cap in a lot of instances, or they're looking elsewhere in the surrounding suburbs. So it's in that looking in surrounding suburbs where people realize that, hey, there's a suburb closer in and you get this ripple effect where (coughs) one suburb grows before other suburbs grow in that period of time. And then the buyers, you know, we're all human. So just think of you're buying activities that you do when you go and look at a house. If you're priced out of a suburb, what do you do? You look at the next suburb uh, surrounding it or you look at the next one and see whether there's any pricing difference and if you can get a price for three four hundred thousand dollars cheaper in an adjoining suburb you're going to make some compromise on that three or four hundred thousand dollars plus also if you've hit the affordability cap people may really want to buy that 1.1 1.2 million dollar house but if they simply can't afford it they have, have no choice but now to buy in the adjoining suburbs and then that's when there's all this competition that goes into the adjoining suburbs so when you have like a Stockland, Lend-Lease, a major developer moving into an area, one thing that, that they do is spend a whole lot of money on marketing. So they bring a whole lot of buyers into that area. So whether those buyers end up buying from that developer or not, Stockland, Lend-Lease, major developers around Australia will bring all those buyers into that one area, which then creates more demand, You know, a little bit of artificial demand based on the developer because they're spending a huge amount of money on marketing and then it ends up lifting values of the surrounding properties. Now that only happens in my experience when the product they're selling is good. If they're selling crap product and say the product that they're selling like the house and land is you know five hundred thousand dollars and the suburb uh, one or two suburbs in is like a real premium on that like six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for a second hand property what ripple effect do you expect to get in that instance? You're probably not gonna get that much. If anything, that transition suburb now looks really cheap when you're comparing to the existing suburb. So it's then that the transition suburb has that pricing difference, that pricing disparity, and it's likely that the transition suburb will then get way more growth than the outerlying suburbs. So you're not gonna get that ripple effect, you're gonna get that initial 
suburb that's in transition getting that big capital growth. That's been my experience on the outskirts. Now the inner city suburbs, they can experience way more growth than the outer suburbs, but the principles are exactly the same. In that if you get in, basically in that first wave, that first wave of development, you can buy in in those first few buildings before prices really really rise in value. There's an area around Brisbane, that's a really good example, Newstead. And Newstead was a gasworks plant, old gasworks plant, it was nothing there, bordering the river. Again, big developers moved in, Stockland, Avid, major developers. If you had a board in there when it first did the uptick, which was around 2012, then there was 20-something cranes in the sky in 2013, 2014. So that whole area went ahead really fast. And it went from being an industrial center where there was a lot of older industrial sheds in there and they were being converted into residential high and medium-rise buildings. And that market or that product that came to market, some of it was investment grade stock, some of it was two bedroom, one bath, and it was just, it was crap. Um, But then there was a lot of the market that was higher end, more luxury. There's a lot of units that have water views. So you're now creating a product that didn't exist before. And then the buyer demand puts a price on that product. And because Newstead is only a few kilometers from Brisbane CBD, and it also borders New Farm. So New Farm is quite an affluent suburb as well. Uh, It also borders Tenerife. So you've got the highest suburbs, the highest priced suburbs or some of the highest priced suburbs in Brisbane, directly next door is this cruddy suburb that didn't exist and it was an old gasworks plant only just over a decade ago. And they're going and putting these apartments. So the writing is on the wall. Of course, these apartments are going to sell for a premium. And if you get in that first wave, you would have experienced at least a 20 or 30% growth, even in the apartment market I'm talking about. If, you, if you're a developer and bought land in that first wave, you easily could have doubled the value of the land over even a couple of year period. So there was that initial wave. And then what happened between 2013 to 2016, we went through the big construction boom in that area where all these buildings got built. And that was a similar time that Sydney experienced and as did Melbourne, but you know Sydney's property market went ballistic during that period of time. And then we experienced the 2016 oversupply in that area. And then that's when property values started to fall. And they did fall with the unit market, especially they fell by 20%. So you could have got in, made 20, 30% in a couple of years. But if you didn't get out at that point, then you probably would have lost a lot of those gains. Now that that's generally speaking for the normally the investment grade apartments. If you had bought an owner-occupied apartment and you had bought it well, I don't think you would have lost that 20, 30% gain. Um, but the market definitely did flatline. It was because the oversupply of markets in general. So that was you know, around 2016, 2017. And then if it wasn't for the COVID boom, that market would have, would have well, already had started to uptick a little bit in 2020. So I would have expected 2021. So you kind of left with four years of stagnation. Before, and that was due to, again, the market, the oversupply had been taken up by the market, both rentals and purchases. And then now, after that period of time, which generally lasts for three to five years, is that stagnation period, then 
After that point, then the, there's more buyer demand, then that's when prices get pushed up again, and then that's when developers come and move in and projects are feasible again. So you go through that second wave of the boom market, and that was that would have happened irrespective of you know, the post-COVID boom that we had, and it was all just because of pent-up buyer demand and also affordability. Now, all of a sudden, you're three kilometers from the CBD, and these luxury apartments that really should have been priced at a lot of them, you know, two, three, four million were undervalued because we'd had three, four years of no growth and even, you know, some negative growth in that area. We had that. So we were at a point where incomes have increased, people's savings have increased, there's more people moving into Brisbane and into that inner city pocket. So now you've got all this pent up buy demand and then that's when the market explodes again for a period of generally two to three years. And then, you know, off the back of that, developers move in and you'll see another 20 cranes in the sky, which is actually partly happening now, but because of the construction issues with labor and material, as I'm sure everyone knows, because of that, we didn't go through a typical construction boom. So that's still coming. We are gonna see, and we already have seen, you know, markets flatline a little bit. So we've gone, I think we're gonna go into this temporary stagnation, whether that's new market, whether that's other, oh, sorry, your yeah, new market or other parts or new stead rather, not new market, new stead in Brisbane or, or other markets. I think it's going to be short lived because we didn't see that proper construction boom that we should have had. And we're going to be rolling, be increasing our, our prices uh, off the back of undersupply and when affordability comes back into the market. But in saying that, you know, there's plenty of places outside of Melbourne and Sydney that are very affordable for a lot of people, especially if you're selling property in Sydney or Melbourne, it's very affordable to buy basically in the rest of Australia and get a whole lot more property for a lot less money. So that's areas in transition and when my experience has been that you can make the most money, it's in that initial uptick. And if you miss that initial uptick of that first round of development, then you've got to wait, unfortunately, for that next three to five year run. And I, I hate to say it, but there have been areas that have gone through that run and they will be in oversupply very soon. There's not a whole lot of areas that are in oversupply, but if you are in an area that is in oversupply and it is hitting that affordability cap, you're probably gonna go through another three to five years of stagnation, but there are still plenty of markets that are in undersupply and they are undervalued. Maybe they've had a 20% drop in the last 12 months, and now there might be another 12 months of stagnation before that market really goes into oversupply, I'm sorry, undersupply, and then the affordability levels then increase for people as lending starts to come back into the market, and then we're going to see, I think, a typical construction boom, which will be that two to three year really proper run where we are gonna see 10 or 20% growth per annum for those two or three years in, in certain areas. So just because an area has grown by 20, 30, 40% over the last few years, that doesn't mean that it's not going to increase in value again. I'm in areas, I'm developing in areas that have had and one particular area I'm thinking of, it's had like 40% growth over the last couple of years. And I don't expect that area to go backwards. It, it is going through a bit of a stagnation period at the moment, but it's etching up ever so slightly. And I think in the next 12 months, because it's in such undersupply and people can still afford to buy properties there, 
that it it just has to boom again just because there's going to be so much more pent up demand over the next 12 months that it's just going to go again. It's not going to go as rapidly as what it did in COVID, but I think it's going to be more sustained growth over another few years, which means that I think it'll probably do maybe 15 or 20% capital growth per year um, for maybe two, maybe three years if we're lucky. So that that could easily put another 50% onto that suburb. So that, that could be 100% growth in a period of six years. And that suburb is 10 kilometers from Brisbane CBD. And there's a couple of others similar to that. So if you have a look at those inner rings, you know, around Brisbane, if it's Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, wherever it is, if you have a look at those those inner ring suburbs, and even if you're further out, 20 kilometers out, if those suburbs have experienced that sort of growth, there's no reason why they can't experience more growth, providing that the affordability level is still going to be there into the future. So for the particular suburb that I'm developing in, you know, the price of property that I'm selling is early 1 million. So they start at around 1.1 mil for a three better, 1.2, 1.3 mil for a four better. They were previously, you know, eight, $900,000 products. And I truly believe over the next couple of years, they could easily do another 50% on that. They, they could easily do another half a million increase in value. There's no reason why they couldn't. It seems unfathomable to the people in the suburb, but there's enough affordability in that suburb and for buyers coming into that market that that, mar- that area could easily go another 50% in the next few years. And just have a look at what's happened you know, in Sydney, in Melbourne, where people never thought that properties would increase so much in value, and they have. And for new buyers coming into the market, they may not be able to afford it, but for the people that have owned those properties, they've now got a whole lot of equity, realize that equity gain where the rest of Australia has really gotten left behind somewhat in in that regards. I think Brisbane hasn't seen its light in the sun just yet. And I know plenty of areas of Perth are booming. I think there's lots of areas of Perth that uh, in that have boomed too much, they've overshot the mark. So that value proposition I don't think is there anymore. But I, I also think that if you've got an area that's boomed a whole lot and the neighboring suburb has not boomed anywhere near that amount, it does raise question whether or not that adjoining suburb now has a real potential for that capital growth. But there are other fundamentals, of course, within that. And Perth, just as an example, because I'm talking about Perth, Perth is a small market. That supply-demand equation can get toppled over pretty quickly. In other words, if mining dries up, the supply disappears from the market. Sorry, the demand disappears from the market. So it's a lot smaller market. Perth is remote from the rest of Australia, so it's its own individual market. And everyone likes to talk it up now and say it's not reliant on mining and it's a different market, it's diverse and all of that stuff. That might be somewhat true in a way, but mining creates a whole lot of jobs and I don't think Perth is ever gonna change from being ultimately a big mining town because the mines do create not just the workers in the mines, it also creates the surrounding economy. So for one worker that's in one of the mines making $200,000 a year and for you know other business owners, they could employ another 10 plus people and employ meaning that they're spending money into the economy, they're living in that area, which means that when that one job goes, 
potentially 10 other jobs go with it. And whether that ratio is right or wrong, I'm not sure, but I have read some statistics around that previously when I've looked into mining towns and I've always decided not to invest in mining towns because if you time the market wrong and the market turns there very quick, if you time that market wrong, you can get stuck in those areas holding properties for a long time. And I've known people like that that have held properties in Perth for the last decade and experienced no growth and it's only been the last really 12 months that they have experienced some really moderate growth uh, which <clears throat> hasn't been worth the last 10 years of waiting. So if you get into Perth now and the market absolutely tanks with the back of you know this potential recession that the US is talking about, you could be left holding that property for another 10 years without any capital growth. But in saying that, I still think there's a couple of good areas that haven't seen the full cycle in Perth yet. Um, but that's just you know what the data looks like at the moment. That could easily swing if the mines start laying off 5,000 people in one go. The data now might look good, but if that happens overnight, the mines lay everybody, everybody off, that might look really bad in six months' time. But look, I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, there's, there's other areas, so I was talking about transition areas going from, earlier going from like low density residential into that more higher density when you're inner city suburbs or normally on the outskirts we go into like farmland, large rural properties, then cutting those up into smaller housing lots and that initial transition phase where you see the most growth typically, providing that you're you're undervalued in the market, well that area is undervalued compared to the surrounding suburbs, the surrounding areas. So just when I talk about transition in that aspect, so I'm sure if you're still listening to this, you're probably thinking of some transition suburbs that you've seen grow over time. It does take time for these suburbs to emerge, but that growth trajectory only lasts for two to three years and then flatlines. And if you have lived through the property boom for the last few years, whether you've owned property or you're sitting on the sideline, you would have seen massive growth in various different areas. Some areas now have come back because people have gotten buyer's remorse and you know affordability's kicked in. Now there's more supply coming to the market. So you can see how quickly it can turn. That's not that typical of a normal property boom cycle, but it does turn or it can turn quite quickly where at one point, everybody's scrambling to buy the one property and then you know, six, 12 months later, nobody wants to buy that property. You got no buyers. So when the market's running hot, everyone thinks the market's never gonna stop. When it's running soft, everyone thinks it's running soft. So you gotta take those global factors into account as well. Just because the suburb's in transition and it's doing the, the initial you know, transition phase from farmland to little blocks of land doesn't mean, globally speaking, that that property is going to grow in value if you've got other you know global factors happening like you know recession in US potentially or you've got a suburb next door that's going to oversupply the market and oversupply the adjoining suburb so there are those factors as well it's not as simple as picking the the suburb and then going bang I'll just buy any old property you still got to be astute about your buying the the other consideration with suburbs in transition I bought a property in an area that was uh, and again, another area outside of Brisbane, 10K from the CBD in the western suburbs. And when I bought into this area, there was limited developments in this in this area. I bought the site to do a, de- a property development on. And whether I was doing the development or not, I knew the property was really good buying because it was a unique 
site. There weren't many big land parcels left in the area that had all been split up 40 years ago. So I bought a, a reasonably sized land parcel to do a number of houses on. And at that point in time, there were lots of townhouses under construction. So this suburb was going through a gentrification where new buyers were coming into the market. And that area was extremely tightly held. It was white Australian demographic typically that had lived there for basically the whole life, 30, 40 years. And the product that was getting built by developers were townhouses. And they were some of them were units, but most of them were townhouses. And they were downgrader stocks. They were, they were people that had lived in their house for 30 years, paid off the mortgage. They were now selling their house and then moving into these townhouses. And the townhouses were priced at around the same price as what people could sell the house for. So people would ultimately trade in a secondhand house that needed a full renovation or a knockdown and buy a brand new townhouse. So I saw that writing in the wall. The, the market had only just started to transition so these townhouses were just under construction. When I first bought the first lot of 20 townhouses were built. Since then, there's probably been maybe 200 being built in that area. And there's one particular development that hasn't kicked off yet where there's like 100 just in, in one development, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for this suburb, which is infill and it's green and leafy, that's a lot of houses or a lot of townhouses to go in that area. So because people were spending basically the same you had people in their 50s and 60s ultimately trading their house in, their family home for a townhouse that they could lock up and then travel overseas. So what that meant was that there was new product coming to market, which the market hadn't seen before, as in that market was traditionally tightly held and there was nowhere to downsize to. <coughs> so now you had these the older demographic, the baby boomers, selling to the younger demographic which generally were young working professionals in their 30s with kids that were moving out to be into a house that had some land <clears throat> that their kids could play in. So they were normally in their early to mid 30s buying their generally first or normally second homes so that had a bit more money and they were working professionals on higher incomes and they were definitely on higher incomes than their predecessors selling the homes. So what a lot of these buyers did was buy these old homes and they, these old homes need a lot, of, a fair bit of work. So they'd buy the house and then they'd renovate the property. So back then the houses were being bought for seven, $800,000 and then people were spending money on the renovation to do them up. And so what that meant is these old homes were being transformed and then we had these new townhouses that were being sold for around the same money, around that eight, $900,000 mark or there, thereabouts. So you ended up, so you, you started to transition out of these old homes that needed a lot of work and some of them got bulldozed into now a modern, a much more modern suburb transitioning from an older demographic then into a younger demographic and the younger demographic had more money in comparison to their predecessors. So the, the suburb not only transitioned from how the houses looked and feel, looked and felt rather, but now the suburb also transitioned to like the cars that were being driven. So you went from pretty modest cars, you know, you went from a suburb of Toyotas and say Hondas to now a suburb of BMWs and Mercedes. And that, that transition really only happened over the period of a few years. And it was around when I purchased the property and it was over those few years that those townhouses were built, you know, those few hundred townhouses were built and then new people started moving into the area. So one other thing that 
people moving into the area did also were buy these rundown houses that needed a lot of work and they'd actually demolish them and either build a new house, but a lot of the times they'd demolish them, split the block and build two new houses. So now you were getting more people moving into the area, again, more advertising by developers. Admittedly, they were small developers. Um, but not only were they getting advertising with these two new homes that were you know, spec built, so they were speculating on the market. They'd build a house, you know, stage it. It'd be a nicer house. And so now you were going from these seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollar homes now the new houses were selling for sort of 1.1, 1.2 million dollars on half the size block of land, but the houses were nice. They were brand new, they were big, four or five bedrooms. So now, again, younger families moving into the area, they still had a little bit of backyard, not much, but the house was new, modern, and it was a lot cheaper from the adjoining suburbs. So that pricing difference, that pricing disparity, was at least a few hundred thousand dollars cheaper than the adjoining suburbs. And the adjoining suburbs had pretty much the exact same amenity as this suburb that I'm, that I'm referring to. So you really have that transition, and that only happened over a few year period. <clears throat> if, you had a look, if you have a look on back in history, um, during this time, during this time in the market, <clears throat> the market only showed overall something like a 10% growth for those three years. So you had like a 30% growth, which is not too bad. <clears throat> But in actual fact, if you had have done it properly, you could have actually gotten more like a 50% growth on those particular properties over that same period of time. So the market's only going to average out most of the properties. But the, you know, the property that I had experienced a lot more growth than 50% in that period of time. Um, but you, you could have picked a very niche point in the market, you know, bought a property at 700,000, knocked it down, built two $1.2 million houses on that. And that happened all the time. So that, that is also an area in transition, not to the same extent thinking of you know, high rise because you are in that, still in that 10 kilometer inner ring, but it was into that more higher density. And those developers that were moving in, some of them were quite large developers that were in there. So again, you had marketing money, marketing budget poured into that suburb. So where people weren't necessarily looking in that suburb, they might have been looking at an adjoining suburb. Now the developer's spending money to put ads up to show prospective buyers in adjoining suburbs, hey, this product is so much cheaper, why don't you look here? Or it's the same price, but you get something new. You might be a couple of k's further out from the city, but you're getting a brand new product, brand new townhouse or brand new house, and it's a lot cheaper. So. They're attracting people from other suburbs, so creating ultimately artificial demand, which is what happens with development. You're creating artificial demand, which then pushes the suburb up. So what ended up happening was that suburb over the last five-ish years ends up catching up to the adjoining suburbs, which, were, which had a lot more higher pricing. So it hasn't caught up completely. It still has that 20% buffer, so those other surrounding suburbs end up going up by you know, 20%, 30% as well. So it still has that pricing disparity. The pricing gap has closed a bit or quite a bit. So this suburbs had more capital growth than the surrounding pockets, which were more blue chip at the time. And it's because it went through that, that transition, that gentrification of those old cruddy homes into new homes, renovated homes, and then nice new modern townhouses for downsizers. So if you have suburbs in your backyard, just watch how they transition if they are going into that old cruddy suburb into new, nice new suburb with new 
neighbors, new demographic that's got more money, the cars will change as the suburb transitions. And then that suburb will you know, go through that two or three year growth phase and then it'll plateau, generally speaking, but it generally will boom, then it plateaus for three to five years, and then it goes through that boom again off the back of pent up demand, and then affordability comes back into the market. So for a lot of suburbs that have hit that affordability ceiling, I think that we are gonna see 12 months or beyond of affordability issues once interest rates start coming back down then obviously people have more affordability so they can jump back into the markets and then if there's undersupply in those markets you're going to have multiple buyers that who now have finance who now have confidence back in the market jumping in and buying into those areas of undersupply so i hope that you've learned something from that. That's been my experience with suburbs in transition that you can make a whole lot of money and that's actually where I've made the majority of my money both in development but also from holding properties and it's been in those transition suburbs as a result of development. So just by default, I've bought in highly restricted suburbs that have gone through that gentrification. I've been part of that in the developments that I'm doing and as a result, I've gotten a lot of capital growth from those suburbs and a lot more capital growth than many suburbs I see where people have bought in that haven't gone through that transition phase where the suburb looks a lot better in terms of the fact that it's, it might be blue chip, uh, it's really established, but I've way outperformed the capital growth just by being in a transition suburb, which might have had a slightly bad stigma about it, but fast forward three to five years when there's a whole lot of money being spent in there and a whole lot of developers move in, new demographic, that suburb in my experience has way outperformed other suburbs, which at the time were considered a lot more premium. And that will happen now. I mean, you just gotta look around the capital cities in areas that used to be industrial that are now high-end residential or that used to be housing commission that are now high-end and that's you're going to think of hopefully examples around the places where you live where that's happened over the last three five ten years or beyond that and it's those areas that experience the biggest capital growth and it's those areas that you actually should be looking at buying in to the market when it's just hitting that growth trajectory, that early stage, where you can really ride that growth wave for two to three years, then sit on that property, or you can sell it if you wish, but sit on that property and then wait for the next growth cycle. So you might experience the average of 7%, which is property doubling every every 10 years, so that's 7% compounding growth, but how it actually works is it all comes in one wave and then it plateaus. So it doesn't all happen every year so you don't get 7% this year, 7% next year. It all just comes in one go in two to three years and then it stagnates. And that's how the property cycle works generally around the place. And my experience has been those areas in transition have way surpassed any other suburb that hasn't had that initial transition. So I hope you've gotten a lot of value from that. And when you're looking at your next property purchase, just have that in the back of your mind. There's a whole lot of other data that I teach as well around selecting properties. But I truly believe data is one thing, but it's how you interpret that data and, and how that's interpreted on the ground 
with your one specific property that you're buying. Because remember, you're not buying the entire suburb, so you, your property portfolio is not gonna perform the same as a suburb. It's gonna perform as per that individual property. And whether that's a three bedroom, four bedroom, whether it's a townhouse unit, whether the unit's got ocean views, river views, you know, they all perform very differently depending on what attributes your individual property has. So one thing is data, looking at that. The next one is looking at, you know, the transition suburb and the suburbs in transition. Then it's about drilling down into your individual property and making the best capital growth from that one property that you're going to buy in that suburb. Or if you're fortunate enough, you might be able to buy multiple properties in that one suburb. So with that, I'll wrap it up. I hope you've learned a lot. If you have any questions, please let me know in the comments.